Nomadland reviewed Chloe Zhao's nostalgic portrait of itinerant America by Richard Brody. There's a lot going on in Chloe Zhao's new film Nomadland, not only because of its variety of incidents, but because of its heterogeneous composition. Though it runs just under two hours, it's two movies in one, a documentary and a fiction. These two motifs hardly coalesce to become a hybrid, though. The film is not a docudrama. Rather, the two elements work against each other, each revealing the fault lines of the other. The fictional side remains bound to and limited by the most conventional and unquestioned observational mode of documentary filmmaking, while the documentary aspect strains against the simplifying framework of the drama in which it's confined. The story is rooted in an actual event, as slated in an opening title card, the closing in January 2011 of U.S. Gypsum's facility in Empire, Nevada, because of reduced demand for sheetrock. The movie's protagonist, Fern Frances McDormand, had long lived in Empire with her husband, Beau, who worked for the company in the mine. After he died, she stayed in the area, but Empire is a company town. Her home was company housing, and when the mine closed, she was forced out. Wanting, nonetheless, to remain in Empire, and her motive drops into the movie only belatedly, she decides to live in her van. The documentary aspect of Nomadland, which was written, directed, and edited by Zhao, and is based on the non-fiction book of the same title by Jessica Bruder, arises from the details of Fern's changed way of living. She has elaborately renovated her van to make it home-like, and with Christmas approaching, she takes seasonal work at an enormous Amazon shipping center in the vicinity. She has a reservation, alphabetized under McD, at a trailer park, as part of Amazon's so-called camper force. She's one of a legion of itinerant workers finding a temporary harbor there. That very detail offers a jolt of investigative observation. As the gig winds down, an older colleague whom she befriends there, Linda May, played by a woman of the same name, invites her to come to a large gathering of van dwellers in Arizona, run by a charismatic and empathetic organizer named Bob Wells, also playing himself. When Fern can't find work near Empire, she decides to go, and the gathering is the first of many way stations on her long path of wandering. Along the way, she meets a woman named Swanky, who's on the road for the last time. She has terminal cancer and, rather than living out her days in a hospital, searches for the wonders of nature while she still can. 
Fern keeps crossing paths with Linda May, who lost her job in 2008, found herself in emotional and economic desperation, and with only meager social security benefits to sustain her, is able to subsist only by living in a van. Fern, following the road and taking whatever work she can get at a rock quarry in a beet processing plant, as a trailer park camp host, meets a man named Dave, an acquaintance from the Arizona gathering, whom she eventually follows to another job as a short-order cook at a large mall-like store in South Dakota. Aside from McDormand and Strathern, the film features non-professional actors, people who are actually living nomadically, Zhao and her crew explained, in a piece by Eric Kahn at IndieWire, that the production's advanced team traveled to sites where van-dwelling nomads gathered and interviewed them on video, which Zhao then relied on for casting. I confess, when I first saw Nomadland last fall, I didn't know this backstory, and I assumed that I was watching professional character actors, giving skillful performances in the roles of nomads. Perhaps this is because Zhao offers the film's supporting characters only scanty dialogue, consisting either of informational sound bites or spiritual reflections of Fern's journey. They feel, in a short, like scripted characters speaking to the needs of the drama, rather than determining or even affecting it. I'd be eager to see the production team's audition clips. I'd bet that they're filled with fascinating observations and profound insights that didn't make it into the team. Fern and David also tend to speak in one-liners, or, like the other characters, offer brief, albeit poignant, pain-filled anecdotes that hit the motivic nail on the head and drive it quickly into its place in the script, explaining with little give or detail what traumas or difficulties spurred them to choose the nomadic life. Incidental talk doesn't exist. Fern isn't seen chatting with most of the people she meets at work, or even in the company of her new friends, It isn't so much that she's closed-mouthed as that the movie doesn't linger long enough to listen in. What's missing, in addition to the characters' personal lives, are practicalities. The movie is set against a backdrop of the 2008 financial crisis, but it neglects the basics of nomads' lives. How do they vote? Where do they pay taxes? Where did they bank? There's a sequence involving David's illness and surgery at a hospital, but it's frictionless. He's in and then he's out. By contrast, another film opening Friday, Shatara Michelle Ford's Test Pattern, has a scene involving a very brief visit to a hospital, where no procedure is ultimately performed but where the protagonist is nonetheless compelled 
to sign a document accepting any and all related charges in order to get her ID back from the receptionist. Those 30 seconds say more about the rigors of survival amid the financial squeeze of the medical establishment than does all of Nomadland. The story of Bob's organizational skills and the loose administration that he seems that he appears to maintain is the most notable aspect of the film. Its quasi-documentary vision of an alternative local government with apparently no formal or institutional structure. The civic and effective bonds that it creates between people who, by dint of living and traveling in their vans, are necessarily isolated. Bob's charismatic, virtually sacerdotal role (coughs) surmising, exhorting, and educating the participants in his widening campfire circle in order to provide them with what he calls a support system for people who need help now makes him the most fascinating character in the film. Yet, what the film offers of him and his story is dropped in belatedly and elusively, in a way that attaches his activity to a large psychological motive, a tragic one, but that leaves the richness of personality and experience untapped. Bob's community is indicative of the movie's vast but implicit political underpinnings, as in one great moment. Bob is about to speak to a large crowd about the Ten Commandments of Stealth Parking. And I was dying to hear them, but the scene cuts out before he even delivers the first of them. The politics of official hostility to nomads, to the houseless as to the homeless, a notable distinction that Fern herself makes, underlines the action, furnishing several of the sharpest moments in the film, as when Fern, approached in lot by an official, makes haste to tell her that she got permission to park overnight there and at another lot when Fern is sharply told by a guard that she can't park and must leave. And she responds with an intimidated and defensive haste that she's going. Nomadland shows both the struggles of nomads of necessity who lost their livelihoods and of those who describe their nomadism in terms of a spiritual quest an intentional rejection of settled ways of life and what they consider more conventional and more commercial consumerist values. Fern's nomadism seems to arise from an ambiguous combination of the two, and the motive behind her journey remains vague until late in the film. When it's pinned to the screen like an index card,
In an encounter with her sister Dolly, Melissa Smith, and her family at their posh suburban house, the two discuss a lifetime of what Dolly characterizes as Fern's eccentricity and what Fern herself considers a fierce and resolute drive for independence. Jaw's narrow method of fictional dramaturgy, which sticks to the functionally observationally <clears throat> and avoids voiceovers, flashbacks, direct addresses, or other interpolations, forces the script and the characters into fabricated corners. And there's a political side to this decision, too. Doubtless unintentionally, Nomadland is a movie born of both America's and Hollywood's working class problem. The movie exalts the working class, but it doesn't let working people present themselves. Instead, they're seen in relation to and through the gaze of Fern, which is to say of McDormand, who isn't just the lead actor, but a real-life movie star. What's more, Fern's mediating role has a basis in cultural difference. She's the only character on the road who's seen displaying book learning. A former substitute teacher and tutor of English, she recites from memory a Shakespeare sonnet. Scene after scene of the nomads Fern encounters is punctuated and capped by Fern's knowing, engulfing gaze making her the film's impresario of compassion. The result is a movie that conveys the sense of aestheticizing disaster. The landscape, as seen in Nomadland, isn't beautiful but picturesque, not discovered in images, but seemingly chosen as decor, as sets. There are sunrises and sunsets, juicy orange sunballs on the horizon. The aesthetic is entwined with the melancholy of nostalgia. When the chances to make personal connections or to acquire housing present themselves, Fern chooses to head back to the road. Only in solitude and wandering can she remain steeped in her memories and the feelings and details of her life with Beau in Empire and of her distant past. Sitting, sitting alone in her van, Fern gazes longingly at old photos and out at the wide and undeveloped spaces and invites her past to dwell with her there. What Fern loved, she says, about the otherwise nondescript company-owned tract house that she and Bo lived in was its location. With nothing but desert visible from the window. The vast western landscapes serve in Nomadland as natural symbols of that same past, the industrial past that is Fern's lost Italy, and by extension, America's.
The road ahead of her leads backwards. In the end, Nomadland delivers a liberal libertarian longing for a vague, undefined restoration of what was. The Secret History of a Filmmaker's Family in No Crying at the Dinner Table by Crispin Long. For a project in film school, Carol Wynne set out to make a fictional short film about three generations of a family as they experience assimilation after immigration. But the process revealed a different story, one closer to home. Wynne's parents each moved at different times during the 1980s from Vietnam to Canada, where they met, got married, and raised two daughters. With Wynne's father's parents as part of the household. To prepare to tell the invented story that she had originally conceived, Wynne began to interview her parents and sister. She soon realized that asking them questions about their lives so directly produced an unprecedented openness. Although the events they described were familiar, she told me I'd never heard them confess their emotions this way. She decided to reconceptualize the film as a kind of social experiment. She would interview each family member separately, then gather them at the dinner table to listen to excerpts from the interviews together. The result is the short documentary, No Crying at the Dinner Table, a striking depiction of what families avoid discussing and what can happen when those taboos dissolve. Growing up, Huynh said, she was regularly told not to cry at the dinner table, hence the film's title, and felt discouraged from overtly expressing sadness. I learned how to cry silently so that I would never get caught, she said. One memory stands out in particular. <clears throat> After her dog was hit by a car, she saw its body and was traumatized by the sight. It seemed to her that there was a finite period of time in which it was acceptable to grieve, even though she was affected by the event long after. Her parents had witnessed war and death in Vietnam, and next to the gravity of those painful experiences, her own losses felt insignificant. Before she made no crying at the dinner table, Wynne had never heard the term intergenerational trauma, but when a film programmer used the phrase in a description of her documentary, it struck her as an apt expression for what she had been grappling with in her work. The interviews give a kaleidoscopic image of the family members' private pains and expose patterns in their shared struggle to communicate. Wynne's mother recounts challenges similar to the Wynne's in expressing emotion with her own parents. She and her mother, Wynne's grandmother, did not often hug, and she remembers the one time she gave her mother a kiss, when her mother was very ill. She never hugged or kissed her father. In Vietnam, the way parents express their love to children isn't through physical intimacy, she says, adding that the lack becomes normal. You get used to it. Wynne's sister talks about her memories of their grandparents, their father's parents, who lived with them. 
Her sense of safety when spending time with them, while the parents worked long hours or running up to their room to watch movies with them when she didn't want to do her homework, and the enduring grief that she has experienced since they died when she was young. But I guess you're never really finished mourning anyways, so I guess it's not that big of a deal. The story that Wynne's father tells is especially heartbreaking. He was called upon to check on his brother in the midst of a mental health crisis, and after he left his brother's apartment late at night, 15 minutes before his wife was supposed to arrive, his brother killed himself. Wynne knew that this had happened, but she had never heard her father express his anguished sense of responsibility before. I'm only telling you because you asked. I have never spoken openly about this, he says. Even to this day, I still feel guilty. He says that he still sees his brother in his dreams. In shots between their stories, we watch the family members go about small tasks. Wynne's mother soaks bok choy and prepares a whole mackerel for cooking. Her father lights incense and her sister soaks in a bath. These quiet moments evoke the way memories arise during moments of quotidian repetition and the strangeness of mundane life continuing after tragedy. Before shooting the scene in which her family sits together at the dinner table, Wynne expected them to remain characteristically stoic as they listened to the recordings. She imagined that the film would be a commentary on how people can be at a loss when their loved ones' inner lives are laid bare. Instead, at the, as the scene unfolded, something happened that surprised her. Her mother and sister began to cry, and her sister wrapped her arm around her mother. Wynne had not anticipated that her approach would lead to the kind of unabashed display of affection that can change a family dynamic, rather than merely document it. I had to sit down with my editor and reevaluate, you know. What is the story, she said. In some ways, though, the film is a logical culmination of the creative work that she has been doing for years. She has been making videos since she was a teenager and has often included her family in the process, casting them in her films. Through the extensive conversations she had with them to prepare them to speak about their experiences in front of a camera, a strong sense of trust was established. Her artistic process also seems to have strengthened their relationships off-camera. Since they worked on the documentary, Nguyen said, for the first time, she and her family members have started regularly saying, I love you, to one another.